Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Next week, the Nobel Prize for Physics will be announced. And to get the excitement going, we're going to chat about some of our favorite physicists who won prizes outside of their field of physics. So stay tuned to learn more about a physics teacher who won the Literature Prize. But first, I'm in conversation with a physicist and entrepreneur who is developing a laser-based technology that could make some particle accelerators much smaller and cheaper than they are today. While not every particle accelerator is as big as the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, they tend to be large facilities. If a university has one, it might be housed in its own building or sprawl across the entire basement of the physics department. Accelerators are also increasingly used to treat some cancers, but most hospitals simply don't have the space or money to have such a large-scale therapeutic facility. As a result, physicists and engineers have been working for decades to try to create compact particle accelerators. One approach is to use lasers to drive the acceleration process. And to talk about laser plasma acceleration, I'm joined down the line by Manuel Hegelisch, who is an experimental laser physicist at the University of Texas at Austin and founder of Tau Systems, which has just been awarded $15 million in seed funding to develop compact laser-based accelerator systems. Hi, Manuel. Welcome to the podcast, and congratulations on your latest round of funding. Hello, Hamish. And, uh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you very much for having me on the cast. I'm happy to be here and talk to you and the listeners about what we're doing. That's, that's great, Manuel, because um, laser-driven accelerators, that's, that's been a favorite topic of physics world for, for years, and, and we're always really interested in, in finding out more about it. So, so can you explain the basics of laser plasma acceleration? All right. Okay. The basics of uh, laser particle acceleration. Yes. So basically, um, there are two differences, uh, important differences compared to a standard accelerator. Uh, one is where a standard accelerator uses radio frequency waves. We use a laser pulse, so much, much higher frequency, much shorter wavelength. And where a standard accelerator uses a large metal structure, we use a plasma structure. We, uh, we use structures that are set up in a plasma. And that um, affords us two big advantages. Uh, and it allows us basically to increase the accelerating field that accelerates the particles by many, many, many orders of magnitude over what you could support in a metal uh, structure. Because metal, as any material, has a damage threshold. As you increase the field, at some point you reach the damage threshold of the material and uh, it will just get damaged, it will break, it will spark, and uh, you damage it and you can't hold the field anymore and you can't increase your, your accelerating field any further. Well, a plasma, well, you, you get a plasma, right? If you start with a, with a solid uh, material, if you heat it up, it melts. If you heat it up further, you can get it into the gaseous phase. And if you heat it up even further, you now rip the electrons off the, off the atoms and you get a plasma. You, so in a way, 
you, you have the ultimate damage done to the material that you can do to it. You really cannot damage it any further. So a plasma can support the strongest fields we can imagine, basically. So we can uh, put very, very strong fields into that plasma, and our lasers, which are ultra-high-intensity lasers, can create these very, very strong fields. Uh, and that are sort of the two tricks we have there. We have lasers on the one hand that can create those fields, and we have plasmas on the other hand that can support them. And so we can set up um, very much stronger fields, say a thousand times stronger fields. And if my accelerating field is a thousand times stronger, that means I can reach the same energy at, in a, a distance that is a thousand times shorter, ultimately making my machine a thousand times smaller. Now, of course, I'm glossing over how the actual machine looks and the laser has a size and all that and how it all works. But that is the, the basis, the underlying basis of it all, basically. So what, what basically happens, what we basically do is we have um, the actual accelerating structure is very simple. It's just a gas, say helium, and uh, we shoot the laser pulse, and it's a laser pulse. It's not a, it's not a beam. So you have to imagine this as a tiny disk of light, basically. It's, it's very short. It's in, in terms of length, less than the thickness of a hair, much less, actually. And uh, we, we focus it into this gas and we focus it again to a, to a tiny spot about the thickness of a hair again. So it's this little sphere, this little bubble of a laser pulse. And it goes into this, this gas and say, imagine a tube of gas, maybe 10 centimeters long and two centimeters in diameter. It goes in there and it now ionizes the helium. And so now you have a plasma and it, the laser pulse propagates through this plasma and as it does that, it pulls a plasma wave behind it, very much like a boat, a power boat, speed boat, going over a lake will pull a water wave behind it. It will pull a wake. And in that wake uh, of a boat, you can surf, actually. You can put a surfer there, and, and that surfer can, can surf behind the boat. And if the boat will speed up, so will the surfer. And you can go down that wave, and you will gain speed and thereby energy. And that's what the electrons do. They will ride that wave behind the laser pulse and they will speed up, ultimately actually catching up with the laser pulse because the speed of light in a plasma is, is limited and it's less than the speed of light in vacuum. And so when the electrons finally catch up with the laser pulse, we call that dephasing. So that's sort of the maximum energy we can reach and the, the limit of, of what we can do in a single stage. And we can thereby over a very short distance get very, very high electron energies. And what we've demonstrated in our laboratory here in Texas, for example, is that in these 10 centimeters, we got electrons to an energy of 10 GeV, which is comparable, say, to the, the, the energy that, say, the Stanford Linear Accelerator gets over a distance of uh, a few kilometers. And so in principle, we can take a campus-sized machine and, and put it into a room because the laser, I mean, even though the acceleration distance is 10 centimeters, the laser is still the size of a room, a big room. But still, I mean, it's a campus that now shrinks down to the size of a room. Now, there's many, many other beam parameters that we still need to work on, like the energy spread and the emittance and all this. And uh, So there's still a lot of work to do, but the... The potential is there to take something 
that is that big and make it that much smaller. So now you do have the potential of put a tool like that into the hands of many, many more institutions. And and so is that the is that the main benefit of of, of this approach is is shrinking um, the size of the uh, of the accelerator and I'm guessing also reducing the cost significantly or are, are are there any other benefits to the approach? Yeah, I would say that is indeed the main benefit. You you can you can shrink it down and reduces the size and thereby of course the cost because I mean if you were to build a new greenfield accelerator. One of the main costs is indeed the land and boring the tunnels and pouring the concrete and, and, and all that. It's not even the, the actual machine itself. And so if you can skip all that, so you can say if you can reduce the size by a factor 100, you can reduce the cost roughly by a factor of 100. So you can go from a few billion dollars or euros or pounds to a few 10 million dollars or euros or pounds and that becomes a much more palatable proposition so and and that means then that these machines now can become much more ubiquitous right and they have widespread use i mean and the uh, one of the use cases that really has us very excited is the accelerator um so we are i mean there's many many um use cases for accelerators. We are right now looking at electron and we, so far we've been talking about electron acceleration. We can cover other types of particles uh, in a minute, but for now we're just talking about electrons. And uh, what we've been doing in the, in, the, in the community with electrons in the last decade or so is we've been using electrons to drive an X-ray laser, basically. It's called an X-ray free electron laser. And those are the brightest X-ray sources that as a, a community we've been able to, to design. And they are driven by these very large accelerators. And there's only five X-ray free electron lasers on the planet. There's one in Stanford, one in Hamburg, uh, one in Switzerland, one in Japan, and one in uh, Korea. And uh, there's uh, one under construction in China. Um, but that's it. Because you need a kilometer-long uh, electron LINAC to drive it. Uh, but they've been showing for the last decade that they are tremendously useful tools to explore everything from protein structure and viruses and how photosynthesis works to material science, solar, so solar cells, uh, batteries, high energy density physics, anything where we might want to know how something works on an atomic level. And, and they do one fantastic proof of principle experiment after the other, and it gives you a cover of nature here and a cover of science there. But then you can't follow up on it. You can't do anything with it because they are so oversubscribed. It's so hard to get time on them. And you can't go and really develop it into a industrial application. And as a company, you can't go and say, oh, I want to use this. I have a thousand different proteins that I want to look at. Well, you can't because you can't get time on it because there's only, say, one in all of Europe. Right? Actually, there's a proposal to build one in Britain, but it's not been funded yet. And it may or may not be funded. And even if it is funded, it's going to take maybe a decade to build it, and even then there's only one, right? So if we can develop these systems and make them more compact and cheaper, we could have many of those, and 
companies could have maybe their own ones and every major university could have their own ones and there, there could be many and people could develop these things and, and use them as a regular tool. And just as with other research tools, I mean, imagine where we, where we would be, say, in, in biology, in medicine and so on, if we had never invented the microscope. Right. And imagine where we will be if we do now invent this much more powerful microscope and make it as ubiquitous as our normal microscope. Imagine where we can be in 50 years. And that's that's what we want to do, basically. So part of your business plan at, at Tau Systems, is it to to build um, your own um, X-ray free electron laser and then have people pay to, to use it. Is, is that right? Yes, uh, that's, that's right. So, and, um, so there's now been three groups, actually, research groups, academic research groups in the world that have shown that it is indeed possible to drive a free electron laser with a, a laser accelerator. And uh, the first one was in, in Shanghai. Uh, and then there is a, a German-French collaboration uh, that just has shown this a few months ago. And now uh, here there's a group in Italy, actually, that has also shown this. So now, uh, I mean, they are not X-ray free electron lasers. They are free electron lasers at a longer wavelength. But once you've shown that it works, obviously, as we've seen now, this, this, is, this is becoming possible. And we are working on, uh, on, an, on an experiment like that at, at Tau with partners in the U.S. And so, yes, that is definitely the goal. And... Our business approach there is two-pronged. We, on the one hand, we want to be able to offer the full machine for somebody that says, look, we've got that much work for it. We want our own machine. So we want to be able to sell them the full machine from the laser all the way to the end station and everything they need. But since we are developing the machine anyway, we also want to set it up as a, as a center, basically, as a light source center, where then people who may want to use the machine, but don't have the, the money and the resources and the people to run and operate one, can then come and just say, okay, look, we want to measure this thing, and they can just buy beam time on the machine. And, um, and we'll, we could envision, just like you mentioned, you mentioned, for example, uh, um, uh, sort of cancer treatment radiological facilities before, right? There are not many, but there are a few and we could have a few of those centers, one per metropolitan area, if you will, and that would provide access then for startups, say, that want to use these or smaller companies. And, and so what, what would your, your system look like? Um, you, you, know, you mentioned that, um, that it would have to have a, a, a very powerful laser that would, that would be large. So it, it, it wouldn't fit into, a, a, I suppose, a, a small physics lab how um how big would the would the facility be and 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 the laser i'm guessing the laser is is a key part of it um are those i mean is that sort of laser available now um or would more development be have have to be done into into creating a an appropriate laser well uh yes and no so there are lasers available now and we are working with partners there to get the first version going. We're building the first prototype right now based on the lasers that are available today. And uh, they are large, but they are not huge. So we are talking a good sized lab, but it's not huge. So something on the order of five by 10 meters for the laser, maybe. And these are still systems that are 
basically designed and engineered as a lab system. And so one of the things we are now, we are then, this is going to be what the first system is, but then going forward, we are now taking an industrial approach to this and we will take an, take an industrial look and design and engineer this as, as more as a product. And there are things you can do to make, to make this more compact and going forward, future iterations of this can become more compact on the laser side and, and more robust as, a, as a, uh, it evolves as a product. And then there is also other laser technology that we and other groups in the field are working on, um, also going to much higher average powers. And this is driven not just by what we do, but also by other applications. There's quite a few applications out there um, that are working on higher average power, meaning higher repetition rate laser systems with much higher wall plug efficiency. Um, in the US, this is largely driven by the defense sector. Uh, and these things happen, and this is, for us, is going to have the advantage that it is it's going to drive the cost down quite a bit, and it's going to uh, set supply chains up. And so we really think that five, ten years down the road, um, this will look very, very different from what it looks today. We're already seeing these effects. So uh, the laser systems will evolve. They will become much more capable and much more compact than they are today. But that's just the laser system. So basically, you can, how does this look? You can envision, okay, there's going to be one sort of laboratory-sized room where you have the laser system. And then you also have, I mean, for the, the application we talked about for now, this free electron laser, there's also the free electron laser part, which is the way it's set up right now, it's a magnetic undulator. So it's basically a, a long magnetic structure where you have opposing pole magnets. And this is a few 10 meters long. I mean, right now at LCLS or so, it's tens of meters, 50 to 100 meters long. Uh, again, there are things that you can do to make it more compact. The new systems that are coming up, even at LCLS, LCS2 is already more compact. The Swiss Fell is more compact. Our designs are, depending on what wavelengths we aim for, for different applications, are on the scale of 15 to 25 meter in length for the undulator. So you have that, and then you have the end station where you do the imaging, and then it depends on what type of X-ray imaging you do which is again on the order of five to 15 meters because x-rays, you need to diffract them. They bend, they don't bend willingly, let's say, right? You have glancing incidence mirrors and so on. So the whole thing, it's still sort of a large-ish type building that may be the whole, you have sort of a lab, a facility building that's on the order of a 50 meter type scale, which is a large-ish type building for a facility, but it's, much, much, much smaller than a kilometer-long campus. Mm. And and what about um, you, you mentioned um, X-ray free electron laser? So there, you're talking about material science, physics, chemistry, biology, and and also medical applications. Right. You mentioned, but what about um, particle physics? Um, I mean, could could your system or or maybe other systems? be used um, to do particle physics experiments and, uh, you know, perhaps save money on, on making the next generation of huge accelerators to probe beyond the standard model? In principle, yes, but uh, there's a lot to do before we get there, I would say. The key to that 
I mean, okay, let's just let's take a step back. Um, CERN, of course, and the part, I mean, high energy particle physics in general, what everybody would like to do the next step in particle physics is a TV class electron positron collider. And the plan for the next one, so you can't fit that in the current tunnel where the Large Hadron Collider is, right? Because the Large Hadron Collider is where the previous electron positron collider was. So if you want to build something uh, that it goes beyond that, what they call the CERN Super Collider, um, that would be a 100 kilometer long tunnel. So there was an article about this in Nature a few weeks ago, that thing at current prices at a very cautious estimate is estimated at, I don't know, 21 billion euros or so. And that's probably a very optimistic estimate. So that, and even at the most optimistic estimates, they don't, they don't think they can start even start construction before 2038. So let's just say that's a very, very uncertain prospect. And it's very clear that if one could come up with something to make that smaller and cheaper, even a little bit smaller and cheaper, that would clearly something that would be very, very uh, desirable. Now, the problem we have, one of the many problems we have with the laser uh, uh, accelerators in that context is, while you do need the energy, you want TEV center of mass collision energies, the other thing you also need in order to make a physics discovery in a collider is luminosity. I mean, you need many, many, many collisions. And that's right now what we cannot yet do with the lasers. Right now, we are at rates of a few shots per second, a few hertz. For any collider, I mean, there's been studies in, in, in DOE, in the DOE in the US, and so on. there have been studies of what a laser-based collider would have to be, and uh, it would have to be at around 15 kilohertz at least. So we are not close to that right now. So I think that is one of the big things that would have to be demonstrated, that you can get to those repetition rates. Now, as I said, there is a lot of work going on in defense space for very high average power laser systems. And I think eventually there will be laser systems that have enough average power to drive, uh, to drive uh, accelerators in that space in principle. So I think we will have crossover there, but that will be a few years. Uh, and then the other thing that we have to show, and that is of course work that is actively going on is, so we've demonstrated, and that was one of the major missing milestones, we've demonstrated that we can get 10 GeV out of a single stage. And we think we can actually scale this to even a little bit more. Maybe we can get 20 GeV out of a single stage. Well, okay, if you want to get to a TeV, that still means you have to build 50 to 100 stages, which means we have to be able to show staging, right? That hasn't been really shown yet. You have to be able to show efficient staging so that, but that's being worked on, but that's, that's, the, that's one of the big things. And then, and this is maybe the hardest one. Uh, well, we wanna, we wanna collide electrons and positrons if we wanna do this high energy physics. So we have to show that we can actually accelerate positrons in a wake field. And that hasn't really been shown because of course, the wake field is driven in a, 
in a positive normal matter plasma. And now by definition, the positrons have the opposite charge. So they, they sit in the other part of the bucket, right? It's not, that is not a straightforward thing to do. So you'd have to have an antimatter plasma. Uh, I mean, that would be the easy way conceptually, but of course that's a pretty much impossible way practically. <laughs> so you have to figure out how to stabilize them in the other part of the bucket, which is there's a lot of theory work going on in that for that. And there are some experiments and some ideas, but that is not a straightforward thing to do. There is work going on there. And I think we, Hopefully, we'll be able to solve that eventually, but that's, that, that is certainly a hard problem. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks. Um, thanks, Manuel. Thanks so much for, for speaking to us. And I, I really look forward to, um, to what you do at, at Tau Systems and also with your research group at, at the University of Texas. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Next week, on Tuesday, the 4th of October, the winner, or more likely the winners, of the Nobel Prize for Physics will be announced. As you might imagine, we're getting very excited about the prize here at Physics World. So much so that we're publishing a series of articles in the run-up that looks at physicists who have won Nobel Prizes outside of physics. To chat about these discipline-busting physicists, I'm joined by my Physics World colleagues, Tammy Freeman and Mateen Durrani. Now, Mateen, you've written about the physicist Ernest Rutherford, who bagged the Nobel Prize for Chemistry way back in 1908. So, so what exactly did Rutherford win his prize for? And would we think of it as chemistry or physics today? Hi, Hamish. You all right? Yeah, so we've been doing these blogs on the Physics World website about people who've um, studied physics and kind of won prizes in fields other than physics. And um, the funny thing is, as you and I know, Hamish, it's kind of the, the articles that we publish in the run-up to the Nobel Prize actually are more popular than our coverage of the prize itself. So we've been doing our usual Nobel sizzle in the week, and I hope, hope listeners enjoy that. Yeah, so going turning back the clock to 1908, the early 20th century, Ernest Rutherford. So he was, of course, born in New Zealand and he went to school there and then he came to Cambridge to do his PhD. And it was when he was there, he worked with J.J. Uh, Thompson. And then after that, he, he moved to Canada and at McGill University, he essentially um, worked out the concept of radioactivity, that radioact uh, substances can disintegrate, so elements can disintegrate. Um, and... He'd kind of studied this strange emanation that it was called that thorium gives off. And we now know that that is radon gas. So thorium decays via radium to radon. So that's essentially what he discovered. And him and colleagues at McGill did a lot of work in the early 20th century. And it was for that that he won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1907. So he actually, the, the, the nomination, the, the, the thing he won it for was for investigations into the disintegration of the elements and the chemistry of radioactive substances. So that's what he, that's what he won it for. And, but, but isn't it the case that, um, that he was also nominated for the, um, for the physics prize and, and for some reason he was rejected? Um, so, so why was he rejected by the physicists, but then picked up by the chemists, even though he, he was a physicist himself. 
Yeah, that's the thing I looked into, and I discovered a great article from about 15 years ago by Cecilia Jarlskog. She's a theoretical physicist from Lund University in Sweden, and she she dug into the Novell archives. And I think based in Sweden, I'm not sure if she actually went to them, but you can look, certainly these days, you can look online and see who nominated whom in and in which year. And it turns out that Rutherford, he got, um, between 1907 and 1908, he got 12 nominations for a physics prize and only four for chemistry. So what that meant was that his nomination would have been studied by the Nobel Committee for Physics and for Chemistry, and they would have looked separately at, um, at uh, you know, his, his merit on that. And in 1907, the Physics Committee rejected him. Um, and as Jarls Koch puts it, they kind of thought that, um, you know, radium... Um, you know, he'd looked at the decay of that. That that's chemistry. That's a chemical element. So that's chemistry. So the physicists didn't want him. And then the following year, there were more nominations. Um, and again, there, there were some from the physics community, some from the chemistry community. And actually, she, what she says is that the chemists were so keen on him that they wrote a fifteen-page report as part of the nomination process. And of course, they then won the day. And and Ernest Rutherford, who was the eminent physicist of his day won the Nobel Prize for chemistry. So, so it's almost as if the, the, the physicists of the day didn't recognize something that was that's obviously physics to us. They thought, well, if it involves chemicals and chemical elements, then it must be chemistry. Well, I mean, Hamish, that kind of debate goes on today. You know, physicists like to think, um, well, there's famously Rutherford quite arrogantly said, you know, there's physics and there's stamp collecting. There's a bit of debate about whether he actually said that. I think he did say it or, or he was attributed with saying that. So he was slightly arrogant and sniffy about chemistry. And I think there are quite a few physicists today um, who, who still think chemistry is, you know, a lesser subject than physics. Um, but yeah, they felt that, you know, his work was chemistry, so they didn't want him. I mean, maybe in those days they had, there were so many amazing physicists at that time, there was sort of abundance of riches, perhaps, that they could afford to let the chemists have Rutherford, so to speak. But he was happy to accept his um, Nobel Prize in stamp collecting then. <laughs> he did. And then famously at the Nobel banquet in, in Stockholm, there's a brilliant quote that I'd heard before, but I, I put it in my blog. He said, I've dealt with many transformations, but the quickest I've met was my own transformation in one moment from a physicist to a chemist. And so I think he found it quite amusing. But yeah, he 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 took the prize. And I think there's a bit of irony as well, because um, I don't think Rutherford was too keen on chemistry during his formative years in New Zealand. Um, he, 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 did, did he try to avoid it um, when, he was, uh, when he was being schooled? Yeah, years ago on Physics World, we had a really great article by uh, John Campbell, a physicist who uh, knows pretty much everything there is to know about Rutherford. And he's written a you know, huge biography of Ernest Rutherford. And and I went back to that article, and there was a great story by, by um, John Campbell saying that his best subject at school was mathematics, and Rutherford had also done courses in mechanics, sound, and light. But he had avoided chemistry at school completely, because I, I think on the one reason was he had a really bad teacher um, who didn't seem to know much more than the rest of the class, so he kind of avoided chemistry and he even rejected the um when he went on to study at canterbury college in christchurch for his master's degree he had to do an experimental project and again there was one suggested which was kind of looking for the the molecular building blocks of life 
by studying uh, discharges and gases, electrical discharges and gases. And again, Rutherford didn't do that. He felt he didn't know enough chemistry. So yeah, there was there was quite an irony that he, he won the chemistry prize. And, and I think in the world of physics, Rutherford is probably most famous for his scattering experiment that essentially established the modern model of the atom. Uh, but he did more in physics. He was also the first to observe the artificial transmutation of one element into another. So it sounds to me like he, he definitely deserved a physics Nobel Prize. Why, um, w w why do you think he, he didn't get one? Is it simply because there were so many great physicists around at the time that, uh, that there just wasn't room to squeeze him in after his chemistry award? I mean, that could very well be a reason. Yeah, he got, um, like you say, he, he got, well, he got 11 further nominations for the physics prize from, from about 1912 onwards. Um, and then he got seven for chemistry. So there was, was still that split. Um, and yeah, he could and perhaps should have won the Nobel Prize for physics. I mean, he would have been in quite an elite company. I, there's only one other person, I think, who, who has had two physics prizes. And of course, Marie Curie won physics and chemistry. So... I think the Nobel Committee don't like to overdo it, <laughs> but yeah, he, I, you know, he he could very well have deserved, you know, got that prize. And if he had got a physics prize, it would have been fully merited. But as we all know, they can only give one prize a year and um, to a maximum of three people, so it's always a, a tough gig winning a Nobel Prize. Now, you mentioned Marie Curie, who famously won uh, a Nobel Prize in chemistry and a prize in physics, the only person to do that. Um, are, are there any other um, physicists who have won chemistry prizes? Yeah, I mean, I, I look back since the turn of the century, and I think I've got five or six other people who've won a chemistry prize. Um, I don't know if the chemists are running out of things to give prizes to, but I've certainly found... Um, there's people like Alan Heger who won it for um, discovering and developing conducting polymers. Um, someone won it for working on uh, a ribosome structure. So that's kind of um, biophysics. Um, and famously, Eric Betsy, Stefan Hell, and William Murner, they developed that, that technique called super-resolved fluorescence microscopy in 2014. They were all physicists. And then there was another guy, John Goodenough, who shared the chemistry prize a few years ago for developing lithium-ion batteries. So yeah, a lot of people. Those are all people who'd done physics at uh, university level and, and and had gone on to study it, or you know, taken it professionally, done research in that subject. So yeah, plenty. And I haven't, I didn't actually look beyond before two thousand, other than Marie Curie. So there's probably others who would fit. But yeah, there's there's a lot. There's a lot who have. So Tammy, you've focused on two physicists who've won the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine. And the first prize that you look at was won back in 1979 by the physicist Alan Cormack. Now, I understand that Cormack was a nuclear and particle physicist. So how did he end up winning the Physiology or Medicine Prize? Yeah, that's right. So Cormack was working in nuclear and particle physics at Tufts University, but he'd previously become interested in the idea of X-ray computed tomography, or CT. So CT scanning is um, where X-rays are sent through the body at different angles to create cross-sectional image slices. And these slices can also be used to build up 3D images of the anatomy. So Cormac was working on what he called the CT scanning problem. So 
That's how to reconstruct the x-rays from the different directions into an image. And he realised this was basically a mathematical problem, which he solved, and he effectively developed the theory underpinning tomographic image reconstruction. Now, interestingly, when he first published his results in 1963 and 64, he said there was practically no response from the scientific community. So he just carried on his everyday research and teaching. But in 1971, when British engineer Godfrey Hounsfield built the first CT scanner, at this point, interest in CT escalated and Cormac went on to devote much more of his time to this instead. So it was this work that led to Cormac and Hounsfield receiving the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine for the development of computer-assisted tomography. And, and there's an interesting fact that um, that neither Cormac nor Hounsfield had a PhD. Um, I mean, Hounsfield was working in industry, so per perhaps it's not surprised that he had a, he didn't have a PhD. But C C Cormac was actually an academic working as a professor without a PhD, which is um, you know today. I suppose today it would be very uncommon for uh, a Nobel laureate um, not to have a PhD. But um, I suppose what they did was very practical, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is pretty unusual. But I mean, I guess once you've won a Nobel Prize, perhaps it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> no, I don't think so. In fact, I, I think Hounsfield in the tradition of the UK was knighted, wasn't he? So yeah. um, he became uh, Sir Godfrey Hansfield, um, yeah, and, uh, you don't need a PhD when you've got a knighthood, <laughs> do you? <laughs> so, so the second physicist um, that you've written about is uh, a, another British uh, laureate, Peter Mansfield, and he shared the 2003 Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine with the U.S. chemist Paul Lauderbur. So, tell me, what did Mansfield do to deserve his prize? So Mansfield's PhD research was using nuclear magnetic resonance, or NMR, to study solid polymer systems. And as a postdoc, he continued working in NMR, and he came up with the idea of using it for human imaging. So it was in the mid-1970s, um, at which time Mansfield was working at Nottingham University, when he produced the first MR images of a live human subject, and this was the finger of one of his research students. Um, so Lauterbur is credited with the discovery that if you introduce gradients in the magnetic field, so this is basically just variation in the field across space, then you can create 2D images of structures that can't be seen using other techniques. And Mansfield further development this idea of um, gradients, showing how the detected signals could be analysed mathematically and transformed into useful images. And he's also credited with discovering how to drastically reduce the time needed for MRI scans using a technique called echoplanar imaging. And an interesting uh, nugget of information about um, Mansfield is that he volunteered to test the first ever whole body MRI system, which was built in his lab in Nottingham. So, so how did that go? Because wasn't he warned that it could be dangerous by colleagues? Mansfield and his team, so they developed a whole body MRI prototype and they were working flat out to try and get a large scale image in time for a scientific meeting. So the night before they were due to fly to this meeting, Mansfield volunteered to climb into the machine to be imaged. 
Now, as you say, a day or so earlier, he'd received a message from a colleague at the University of California, San Francisco, suggesting that the gradient levels and the switching rate that they planned to use for this image were potentially dangerous. Uh, but Mansfield was fairly convinced there would not be a problem, uh, and they went ahead. So the machine, they first operated it just to produce a single pulse. And Mansfield notes that there was an audible crack, but I felt nothing. So they carried on with the scan, during which time he was clamped in the magnet in pitch darkness for 50 minutes. Uh, apparently, the team's wives and fiancés were on standby to haul him out of the magnet in an emergency. But the whole experiment went well and the images were recorded. Wow. Oh, that's great. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm guessing that today you, you probably wouldn't get away with that. Um, I'm guessing for, for ethical or, or just plain health and safety reasons. Health and safety, um, indeed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think I'm right in thinking that, that CT and, and MRI scans play, they play crucial roles in, in modern medicine, don't they? And, and it's not just medicine. I mean, I, I, I had some dental work done recently, and uh, I had a CT scan done at the dentist. And I just did a quick check um, before this interview, and it, and it turns out that there's lots of dentists in Bristol that do CT uh, scans of your mouth. So the, the, these technologies are, are really important in healthcare, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, CT scans, for example, like you say, dental imaging, they're used for disease diagnosis and monitoring, as well as guiding tests such as biopsies or radiotherapy. MRI as well, it's routinely used for medical diagnosis, treatment and follow-up, um, with the added benefit that it doesn't expose the subject to ionising radiation. So, I mean, both techniques have been developed and refined massively over the last few decades, and both are absolutely essential in hospitals today. Hamish, you've written about a physicist who won the 1970 Nobel Prize for Literature. Well, sort of. That, that, that's sort of true, Tammy. I, I wrote about Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who is a former physics teacher who won the Literature Prize. So who was Solzhenitsyn? He was born in southern Russia in 1918, and from a very young age he wanted to be a writer. But unfortunately, he couldn't study literature at his local university in Rostov-on-Don, so he did mathematics instead. And it turns out that he was a very good mathematician, and I'm guessing probably very good at physics as well. But um, he, he, he sort of ignored that and stuck to his dreams of becoming a writer. But um, unfortunately, just as he um, graduated from university, the Soviet Union entered the Second World War, and he spent the war leading an artillery sounding company. And that's a, a, a group of soldiers that use maths and physics to work out where the enemy guns are. So in a way, his first job was in physics. So did he become a writer after the war was over? Well, sort of. Actually, he, he was very unlucky and he was arrested right at the end of the war. And then he spent more than a decade in various forms of detention and exile. And, and all this came about because um, he was criticizing the Soviet leader Joseph Stalin in letters that he was writing to a childhood friend while he was a soldier. And um, I suppose at that time, letters were opened and uh, that's how he was caught out. 
Um, during his, his exile and imprisonment, um, he did write, but he kept his manuscripts secret. But physics, uh, again, comes into the story uh, during the last few years of his exile, which was spent in a, in a village in Kazakhstan. And, and this village, I mean, it's, talk about the middle of nowhere. It's about, the village is about 4,000 kilometers east of his hometown of Rostov. And, um, you know, if you look at it on Google Maps, it's, <laughs> you know, it's incredible. It's right in the middle of Asia. Um, you know, you just couldn't get far further away from uh, European Russia, I suppose, than, um, than this place. And it must have been a very lonely existence. But, but he was fortunate there because he, he was able to teach mathematics and, phys and physics. And in his Nobel autobiography, Sol Solzhenitsyn said that without that teaching, he wouldn't have survived his exile. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, he did survive. So, so what did he write about? Well, after Nikita Khrushchev took over from Stalin, he was able to publish his first book in 1962. And that, that's a, a very famous book called One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. And like many of his later books, it looked at uh, the Soviet Union's suppression of its citizens. So, so these were fictional books that, that he was writing, but, um, you know, the characters uh, were imprisoned or, or, for example, his most famous book, which came much later, the Gulag Archipelago, um, you know, were sort of banished um, from the Soviet Union and, and, and sent to work in, in labor camps in Siberia. So the theme very much was how the Soviet Union um, suppressed its citizens. And um, th that book, uh, Denisovich, was cited by the Nobel Committee, uh, and they awarded the prize to Solzhenitsyn for the ethical force with which he has pursued the indispensable traditions of Russian literature. But that wasn't the end of his troubles. No, no, he was he, he was very... You know, he was in favor for a while while Khrushchev was in power. But um, when Leonid Brezhnev took over in 1964, his books were banned and um, he wasn't even able to travel to Sweden in 1970 to collect his Nobel Prize because he was afraid that they wouldn't let him back into the Soviet Union. And actually, he was right, because um, a few years later in 1974, he was expelled from the Soviet Union, and he spent the next 20 years of his life in the United States um, before returning to Russia in 1994. So, you know, he spent a good chunk of his life under persecution, which is what he excelled at writing about. And, um, you know, I suppose as, as physicists, perhaps we should be happy that teaching physics was one thing that got him through this rather miserable life that he that he unfortunately led. So you can read more about physicists who've won Nobel Prizes outside of physics in a series of blogs that we've written on the Physics World website. Just look for headlines that begin with breaking boundaries. Thanks, Tammy and Mateen.
I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Manuel Hegelish, Tammy Freeman, and Mateen Durrani for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week to talk about this year's Nobel Prize for Physics. But in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester looks at the uncertainty surrounding the UK's status in the Horizon Europe Research Funding Scheme and how it's affecting physicists working in the UK. You can find all the stories episodes on the Physics World website and also at your favourite podcast provider. Physics World.